John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1282.1C1220, certificate number 33564, the Tech Model Railroad Club. Now, I don't want to be someone who's constantly doing shows about MIT. That's your brand. Please stop me. If I MIT again. Also, I don't know why I'm doing a bunch of shows about computadors, because that's not what I care about either. It's your love of the art of programming and hacker mm-hmm. culture and excitement about new technologies. And also, I don't want to be known as someone whose every show is about the mid-20th century. <laughs> and yet, here, here we are. We are. <laughs> Model railroad, though that's very much your brand. Oh, it's right up, uh, right up my alley, as we say, right in my wheelhouse, as we also say. I wasn't aware until recently of how many rock stars loved toy trains. Yeah, Rod Stewart just revealed his massive train layout, which is part of my inspiration for today's show. I wish I've seen Rod Stewart reveal his massive train layout before, but it was a euphemism. Rawr. Neil Young is a huge train guy, right? He is, and in fact, Neil Young and I have. Talked about model trains with one another. Wow. Which was a highlight of my, you know, Neil Young was always my uh, my default rock star. The biggest rock star I could think of for me personally. And your hero when it comes to model railroading. And well, he was. And he and I, although he's a Lionel train yes. guy and I'm an HO train enthusiast. Are those different scales They're or different brands scales. or both? Uh, well, Lionel is a brand, but it's also, you know, Lionel is, is enough of a brand that when you refer to its scale, which is, I guess, O, hmm. um, uh, you just say Lionel, whereas HO is is uh, is a scale made by – I think HO has become the default model railroading scale for most people. It's the only scale I can name. HO scale. I mean, there are I've, – I've thought for a long time uh, that I should – that I should build in N scale. Uh, which is a lot smaller, and so you can do, you can do so much more um, exciting layouts because it's, it's much so much bigger. smaller. H O is half of O, so you know when O scale was the the standard. I mean, if you had a train that w- went around your entire living room, all it could do was just a loop around the Christmas tree. H O, you could build a 
on a typical sheet of plywood, you could build a fairly interesting layout. But end scale, boy, you could, you know, on a tabletop, you could have a whole town. But I just have never gotten around to it, and especially now that I'm old and can't see and my fingers don't work. But that's the perfect age for model railroading. And then Z, Z scale, which Markle and the German company popularized. Is that I mean, really tiny? Really tiny. You know, the, the where their advertisements, they had an advertisement where a locomotive for a Z scale train fit inside of a walnut. That's when you have to have one of those weird uh, magnifying you lenses a, a over your eyes. Loop. Yeah. Neil Young now owns 20% of Lionel. He, he, yeah, he loved it so much. He bought the company. He's super. He's, he's also super a client. Into it, but uh, but you know, he also buried uh, a hearse in his backyard in its entirety. His old touring car. So he's a little bit of a kook. You know, this weekend I'm actually playing Heart of Gold at a at a big benefit concert here with no less an artist than Dave Matthews. Is he going to be backing you up? No, Dave is doing a couple of other songs. Dave Matthews and Soundgarden and me. And some other other big rock stars. Well, by the time anybody hears this, it, it happened thousands of years yeah, ago. Yeah, that would have been thousands So of they've years. probably heard about what a great show it was. They've probably seen the, the clay tablets. Yeah, what I should have said is, is uh, years from now, I'm going to do this show because, of course, time is a flat circle. Did you not have a model railroading uh, past? Not at all. I uh, By the time I had kids... Uh, Trains had kind of come back through the pernicious power of Thomas the Tank Engine. Oh, ooh. which I think will be an entry in the omnibus at some point. Eep. So, so kids now like kids now love trains, but they're kind of terrible trains. They're mm. they're not really uh, craftsman like. Yeah, in right. any they're way, garbagey with little faces. They on have, them. they have big bulbous eyes. Well, it's the movie Cars too ruined everything by by uh, anthropomorphizing all kinds of machines. Although Thomas the Tank engine predates that stuff. I can't remember if there are trains in the world of cars. It seems like they would not be because they would be effectively slaves. They're they're oh, stuck on their tracks. Right. So that would that would be very sad. In the, yeah. it, you don't want to imply <laughs> some kind of slave subculture, some awful underclass that's trapped on uh, prison one dimensional prison lines. Uh, but I don't think I had a train heavy childhood. Your we, dad uh, didn't, you didn't, you and he did not, uh, train with one another. We did models of, uh, he was very into, he had a model ship phase. Oh yeah. And, uh, so we would, we would often be doing rigging on clipper ships. Like ships in a bottle. Did he ever go that, did he ever become that dad? A hundred percent out of bottles. Yeah. I mean, maybe in the, the, the big bottle we're all in, I don't want to blow your mind. <laughs> but <laughs> at one point it did extend to, uh, Two other modes of transportation, the Millennium Falcon and some kind of famous old locomotive. But okay. it was it was a very large scale. What would it be if the locomotive was the size of a loaf of bread? I don't know. That's a, oh yeah, sort of o, o scale. A big tra- and it, and it, it wasn't mechanized. It didn't have a track. It was just a it was just a replica. Did you build model airplanes like World War II bombers or anything like that? No, I never had it. I never had a model airplane. Phase. Your childhood and mine share absolutely no resemblance. It was a it was the uh, it was the seven year <laughs> gap between them or whatever. All I did was build models. And play with my model. We had Star Wars, and Uh, as a result, every other cool hobby went away. We didn't hang anything from our ceilings. It's so so funny. We had action figures and Legos. Like nine years old by the time Star Wars came around, already fully vested in in building models. and You had already had 10 different hobbies by the time Star Wars came. Shooting model rockets, all that old stuff. Building radios, (laughs) you know, what constituted fun for us... uh, for us early Gen Xers, not like you later ones. And George Lucas probably loved all that stuff, and yet he put the knife in its heart. 
Well, it's funny because my favorite thing uh, it, at that period was they published a book that showed all the model makers at work on the Star Wars models. Have you seen this book? Oh, sure. It's a wonderful book, and I just poured over it. But, of course, they had a huge warehouse. And they were buying old. I mean, you know, our friend uh, Adam is, uh, you know. He, he Adam Savage. Teaches right? the art of, of kit bashing, taking yeah. apart model airplanes and whatnot and uh reusing the parts making the star destroyer out of them you know my lego collection is 100 percent a result of a store that used to be in burien washington that was just a uh, pick and pack of used legos yeah and so we went and would just throw legos into into bags but this was this was when your daughter was interested in legos yeah but but also her mother came along and really screwed it up by throwing all kinds of weird, stupid parts that you wouldn't use for anything. Are they like the minifigure props? Like here's a, a skillet with a hot dog in it and no, here's a we, ping pong racket. And- we have some of those, but no, she would buy those, you know, the, all those dumb spaceships that Lego makes now that have one wing part that you can't use for anything unless you're going to build a black colored rocket ship. So I'm constantly trying to to uh, to hack those parts into something interesting, but I'm always yelling at Zoomers about how Lego should not be like a full wall, like, no. a, and you should take them apart once you've built them. You should you take should. apart and build something else. That's absolutely right. You should zero out your your board at the recording studio, and you should take your Legos apart. And my kids will not have it. They, they leave it once they build their X-wing fighter or whatever. It's a display item. And well, now I, and wait I just I put my head in my hands. You have a five foot tall Saturn V rocket on your desk. <laughs> I do, and I want to take it apart. And my son would kill me. I know you should. You should. You should accidentally knock it off uh, the shelf and have it shatter. And then do, do the cat thing where yeah. I push it closer and closer to the edge. So did you? What? what explain to me the fun of model railroads. I like the miniaturized thing. Mm-hmm. aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very attracted to detail mm-hmm. and the God's eye view. The fact that it just goes in circles over and over, uh, I find a little monotonous. Well, there are several uh, things about uh, several kind of very different aspects of model railroading that appeal to you either in different ways or appeal to whole different subgroups of people. Mm-hmm. Um, there are the there are the people that kind of, uh, they like the sentimentality of the trains. Nostalgia? Yeah, you can, or or even if it's not personal nostalgia, like a, you can recreate an earlier era. You can focus your train set on 1920 or 1950, and and within the context of it, then you're doing you're doing that thing where you're trying to replicate a time, and you would recognize in a model railroad set that oh, that's not what phone poles looked like in 1950. You know, you're it's this it's kind of set dressing like you see in these movies. are the Civil War reenactors of the model railroading world. Yeah, and they really enjoy the they enjoy building it uh, building a railroad set because it represents a um, an environment, a time. Mm-hmm. You know, there are the people that are really into the model building itself. How do you create a realistic building that doesn't look if you if you build a building and don't weather it and this is true of any kind of model building you need to put things on it that make it look used you know water stains oil stains moss um so it's both building the model and then antiquing it or distressing it and that is actually the George Lucas model building aesthetic right yeah, science right. fiction movies had always had clean sleek 
gleaming spaceships until he was like, no, make them look beat up, make them look rusty. Right, and that is that's a lot of the fun of model railroading for uh, for another sort of subclass of people, and also within that, creating nat- natural environments, realistic looking trees, realistic looking grass. That's fun to me. Really fun, and and what you discover is the kind of uh, the sort of fractal nature of of uh, plant life because you can take a clipping from the end of a branch of a real tree and uh, discover that it looks like a tree itself. You can put some lichen on it and root it in the ground, and all of a sudden you've made a a realistic looking tree from a sort of small part of an, of an actual plant. Are these people not just buying all this stuff pre-made from little weird hobby shops? Like, uh, you know, you're not just buying all this stuff ready to go and laying it out on a table. No, true, true model railroaders, just like all modelers are, um, you know, they, they start with, it's just like Adam Savage's hacking model kits. They start with model kits often, Mm -hmm. uh, but then immediately begin, dissembling them, rusticifying them, and... Yeah, that's a word. Yeah. And, the, um, the, the verb form of rust is not rust. It's actually rusticify. No, but uh, but to to make something rustic oh, is to I rusticify see. it. Absolutely. Um, you put it on the rusticerie. And, <laughs> uh, so th- and that's part of the, the, uh, the fun and appeal to a lot of model builders is, is to build a thing that you, that couldn't be, um, that that a that a noob or whatever could not just build out of a box. You've made a work of art, um, but it's immersive. It's a whole world. Right. It's unique. It's nobody else's, and it moves. Right. It's interactive. The train part. Yeah. Are there people that like the the stories? Oh no, there's an avalanche on the on the line heading out of town. I'm sure a lot of people do do that, but like you say, model trains do go around in a circle. So you know, here it comes, and you can either the story possibilities are limited. Yeah, you can have it crash or not, but it's going to come back around in about a minute. It could stop at the <laughs> station, or it could keep going. The possibilities are endless. Right. But but now you're talking about a different group of people. Um, that are active in the model railroad community, which are people that are interested in systems, mm. switching and power grids and, um, you know, all the kind of control apparatus and, and, and the design of yeah. the, of the, the layout itself. At some point it's an abstract thing beyond just how you, there's interesting engineering and getting the switches to work. Right. But there's also the design element that exists out with the, the kit, which is, uh, you know, wh- how would you diagram the things it can do? And, and for me as a model railroader, I never could settle on a single layout. So the, a lot of the fun for me was having a big table building a train layout and then reconfiguring it. I was always taking it apart and rebuilding it. Is that unusual? It's mostly just an old guy named Reed who's like, this is Reed port and uh, in my basement <laughs> and it, here's the water tower and, it's, and he doesn't move stuff around. The moving stuff around is in direct, uh, it's, it is in direct sort of, uh, it's an antipode of the desire to build a realistic Your looking town. and natural um, layout. Yeah. So the two impulses are oppositional. And I think if you're building a railroad set with multiple people, you're going to end up with people of both stripes and they're going to be in conflict with one another. Does that happen? Are there fights? It does. A lot of, 
a lot of really big. Is that why Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young broke up? They did different model they, railroad. That's approaches? right. That's right. Stills was like, no, no, no. We need to put the water tower over here. And Neil was like, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, a lot of big model railroad clubs, and I mean, every city of any size has a, a, a model railroad club, and usually they open their facility up to tours at Christmas time. For some reason, model railroading, I guess it's because of the Lionel train around the Christmas tree, uh, they're, they're associated with Christmas. I noticed that there's a layout that appears in the Seattle Center every yep. every winter, and my kids love it, even though it's kind of the same every year. Yep. They, yeah. they put a list of what the changes have been, like, there's a new school marm down at the old schoolhouse, <laughs> but it's the same layout as last year. There's a model railroading club in Portland, and um, and I, it's worth the drive down there for me to see their layout. It's better than the Seattle Center one? No, 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 no. The Seattle Center one, the, the, the Portland layout is built in situ in the in the Model Railroad Club, and you're invited to go in. Whereas the Seattle Center one, it's multiple clubs. I mean, there's a um, there's a Playmobil railroad train set at uh, at Seattle Center during Christmas time. That's as fantastic to watch as anything. I was in, uh, you know, this is uh, in, we're recording this before Christmas and I was in Manhattan last week and there were signs everywhere for some holiday train layout at the Botanical Garden yeah. that I didn't even. Oh, uh, I, so I went to the one in the Brooklyn Botanical Garden mm-hmm. and it is phenomenal because um, all the, because it runs through the garden and all of the cityscapes there are made from natural materials. Oh, that's fun. Sticks and, and, and plants but they but they build like uh, the Sears Tower. Well, they wouldn't do the Sears Tower. They build the Chrysler Building, but out of sticks, <laughs> and uh, and and they're huge. You know, it's it's a wonderful. I mean, you have to you have to take your your trip all the way out to the Bronx. In the future, the Chrysler Building probably will be made out of sticks. So we need right. to explain that it was gleaming Art Deco uh, <laughs> steel and aluminum in our time. Gradually, the the parts of the building are, were replaced with sticks. In time for the for the sentient squirrels to occupy New York City. Now I just or squirrel New York City. I, I can't stop thinking about the uh, not York City. I can't stop thinking about the Christmas train thing. That's so weird. How did yeah? Because you got your Polar Express. Yep. Like how did how did trains become a symbol of? I guess it's just uh, you know it's an OK Boomer situation where they <laughs> uh, you got model trains for Christmas and then they were it was indelibly stamped on them. Also, I don't know, you know, a, 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 a big locomotive blasting through the countryside. I don't know. There's a lot. There's in, a, in Bethlehem? There's a, there's Just a, imagine how fast <laughs> Joseph and Mary and the baby could have got to Egypt if they'd been on a big locomotive. I was going to say there's a lot of appeal to it being in a smoky, or I'm sorry, a, a snowy environment. But of course, a train going through a summertime environment is also excellent. Very hard to miniaturize snow. The uh, the The... There's always big wads of cotton batting down on yeah. these on these Christmas, uh, or, or you end up with that spray yeah. snow that that looks weird even on Christmas trees. But but model railroading clubs do open typically to the public once or once a year or a couple of times a year, which seems which makes them and their activities seem even weirder to me <laughs> because really like eleven and a half months of the year you don't want any kids in here. It's just like guys wearing. Wearing overalls with the handkerchiefs in the back pocket. The kids would ruin everything with their with their actual grubby little hands. Enjoy. Uh, Tacoma, the Tacoma Art Museum also has a big railroad layout. But what you get, I think, is uh, what what ends up happening in these layouts is that 
different members of the of the um, club get different sections. Mm-hmm. So you're given an area, and you can create whatever whatever you want there. But your inputs and outputs, which is to say where the tracks come in and where they go out, are are established by the the Ubermensch who are designing the whole system. So you can build your sawmill or your Pontiac dealership or your grain elevator, uh, however you like, but, but your inputs and outputs have to fit together. Yeah. And so those input output people, the ones that are building the, the overall system, um, you know, they, I'm sure play around with a million designs, but, but eventually your train set has to settle down. If you're going to put, Grain elevators all over it, and glue them to the glue them to the floor. If you look at Rod's, Rod Stewart's um, train set, I mean, it's not even if you took it apart into five hundred components, it would still only fit together one way. If you like my silos and you think they're stable, that's the song he sings about his non-modular railroad when he's right. when he's working on it. I guess. Um, but our story is about uh, a railroad club and a legitimate railroad club. The the uh, the Tech Model Railroad Club is not a euphemism for something, as it sort of sounds like. Sounds like it should be it, actually like it does seem like it's a mm, what a, a, a twee indie pop group yeah, or, or uh, I don't know a sex club or something. But it really is a a railroading club that started. At MIT, uh, immediately after World War II, and this was an era where model trains were sort of a popular. They hadn't yet taken on, I don't think, the the sort of atmosphere of being an old lonely dad. No, uh, the the overlap with kind of young engineering minded people was probably pretty good. Yeah, it was and, one. It was one of the the closest hobbies to that back in a a, a pre digital era. Sure. You've come back from the war. You grew up during the war and now you have access to, uh, you know, maybe a more complicated version of these toys, but also it was the, it was the era of peak railroad trains were everywhere and not a nostalgic hobby. People love trains. And I think it's, it's maybe universal that if you're, whatever you're doing, uh, when a train goes by, everyone stops to watch and particularly engineering minded people, people that love Systems, people that love big machines. Everyone loves the sound of a train in the distance. And that uh, people that love systems and big machines tend to also be people that are attracted to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And so in 1946, during the war, MIT was a hotbed of, uh, of science that was all fed toward the war mm-hmm. effort. And they built several what were considered temporary warehouses to – you know, to uh, tinker and and um, produce killer robots and lasers, methamphetamines, and sharks, uh, Captain America, sharks filled with. Oh yeah, did they make Captain America yeah, there? Oh, they made so many Captains America there. Um, they made even Lieutenants America. Your favorite movie? It is. It's really one of the great. <laughs> it's one it's of the great, great allegory for you and Marcus. You're always talking about how much you love the Captain America movie. But during this, during World War II. Um, they built uh, they built several of these buildings, and they're basically made out of plywood. and And like so many of the great buildings in the world, they were not expected to last even for a decade. I wish they were Quonset huts. 
I know they should have been, but they needed these buildings to be bigger. And, and, uh, so they, they, a lot of them were three stories tall. They were long, they were expansive. Uh, they needed a bunch of space and, um, and the, the building at the center of our story, it was a building at MIT called building 20. And it's not, I don't think they didn't build 20 of these plywood buildings. There were, I guess the numbering system at MIT, knowing what we know about MIT, I'm sure it started with building N and then building uh, buildings X and Y. And eventually it ended up at building 20. I don't, I don't believe it's the 20th building at MIT. Well, they're engineers. It should be. Right. Although the first floor of building 20 was floor zero, even though it wasn't a basement (laughs) started with floor zero. Engineers. But building 20 was the, uh, was MIT's radiation investigation science building uh, during the war. And after the war, it was sort of surplus to requirements and became a place that was, uh, because it was a ramshackle building, it was made available to all of the student groups and all of the people that didn't, that weren't afforded official space in, in the hoary old Ivy covered buildings of MIT proper. And model railroaders need a pretty big footprint, right? They do. And so the model railroad club began in 46, they took over an upper floor of building 20 and it was, you know, it was a kind of enthusiast group like the, I mean, MIT doesn't have a famous football team or indeed any football team at all (laughs) basketball team or, but they, but they do have, you know, a lot of student activities. And uh, so the railroad club started and it attracted, it attracted a whole, you know, a self-selecting group of MIT students that were interested in this kind of uh, combination of, of mechanical engineering and uh, electrical engineering. And, you know, very, it was a, a, a place that, that a certain type gravitated. And if you and I were both at MIT in the late forties, I would have joined the model railroad club and you would not have. You the, probably would have been off at the at the Frisbee Ultimate. Uh, at the, I had a college roommate who, if anybody if uh, anybody told him his um, his major was uh, in engineering, he would say, "Oh yeah, engineers, I, that's great." Toot toot. <laughs> but this is the one place where that overlaps. Sure, there were that's bo- right. Both kinds of engineers come together here at Building Twenty in 1947. If you were at MIT, what? college enthusiast group do you think you would have joined? Well, most of the things I do did not exist yet, right? Right. I mean, you said Ultimate Frisbee. The Frisbee probably had not yet been invented. No, it had not. It was still just a pie plate. That's actually a future uh, Omnibus episode two, the Frisbee. Trivia, as we know, it did not really exist as kind of a, a competitive boomer pub quiz type activity. Probably not. It was uh, It was just a series of books at what the time. You, what would you have done? Just join the Hardy Boy Hacky mystery? Sack didn't exist. Uh, no. Is there, yeah, is there like uh, is it, I mean, the arts are not strong at MIT. Is there is there a book club? Maybe uh, <laughs> astronomy. Okay, like s- people looking through a telescope. You would have been into that, sure. Like, and that's timeless, right? I mean, the, all those stars are probably dead by now. Like, that's uh, <laughs> well, certainly by the time this this show is being broadcast, <laughs> well in the future. So that's interesting, and I wonder if you took two uh, 18-year-old proto-engineers and gave one of them a telescope and one of them a train set, what you would what you would produce? Well, why don't we find out by following some of the train set uh, the train set mines through their building twenty years? Yes, lots. Are we going to meet some of them? 
Uh, well, we we will meet some. Although you know this uh, this show, when we do biographies, we really focus on the biography of a person. And when we do general things, at least in my experience, we stay off of the we stay off of the players and focus on the big picture. Uh, that's what I like the right? the, the layout the of, layout. Of, of, of the train table, as it were. Um. So. Uh. So. Let's. I mean, I guess we can we can start with John McCarthy, who was a a professor of computer programming, and this is before computer programming was a thing. And in fact, John McCarthy may have actually sort of coined computer programming and artificial intelligence. These were uh, these were nascent ideas during an era when even at a place like MIT. Uh, the idea that computers were going to be much more than calculators was still somewhat scoffed at. I mean, we talked about Ada Lovelace not very long ago having a a broad vision of what computers might one day be able to do or even computers in her time. And she encountered this same resistance from, you know, from the, the more established scientific community, which was, no, computers are calculators – and they can calculate complicated things as they get more powerful. And we're here perhaps 70, 60, 70 years later, and we now see computers have entered every aspect of life. Here we are, yes. Yes. Uh, computers are even beating the like live human beings at jeopardy. It's, it's, a, it's a shameful, shameful situation. Yeah. It's a disgusting display. Yeah. But, you know, the, the you know computers are used in the arts. Computers are, you know, areas that no, nobody, was, <laughs> nobody was thinking of in the late 40s, right? Right and and in particular, and I think now we're still uh, really debating like what constitutes artificial intelligence. At what point does a computer pass the Turing test and and fool us into thinking that it can think, mm-hmm. as opposed to just have a set number of responses? Um, we've seen attempts at creating artificial intelligences. Uh, turn into just racist meme spouters within the course of like six hours of the of four chan having access to it. It doesn't bode well for uh, no. It really doesn't. The first generation of conscious computers. But at the time in in the early fifties, um, there were a few people that were that were thinking uh, well ahead, and and John McCarthy was, I think, maybe what you would uh, you would describe as an archetypal computer programmer. He spoke sort of in clipped, inscrutable sentences. He um, he had a long beard. He wandered around in his uh, rabbit slippers, uh, shooting rubber bands at birds. No, he didn't do any of those things. But he he was working on um, working on notions of computer programming, and uh, and later on spent many years working on a, on one of the first computer programs that could reasonably play chess against a human opponent. And he was a model railroader. Well, no, but he, uh, no, uh, but his, um, his computer programming. Um, so this was in a time when computers themselves took up whole buildings. Yeah. And uh, nearby to building 20 was uh, building 26 and building building twenty six housed the um, the early IBM computers that were giant calculators, mm-hmm. and they were considered a kind of um, you know they were off limits to all the 
to all the undergraduates, of course, they were busy computing the area under a circle, or I'm sorry, the area under a curve, or... Uh, where these were to be used by people for engineering problems, right? The, yeah. The, the area of the circle is equal to five times the square of its radius. You said computer again. I did. And I look said, what happened. I said computer, and the computer over there told me the area under a circle was... It told you how to compute the area of a circle. Yeah, that's pretty nice of it. Five times the square of its radius, says Amazon. Fascinating. Um, and so access to these computers was, was uh, you know, highly restricted at IBM or at, uh, at MIT at the time. People were using them to crunch numbers. They were. And, and there were always sort of defense aspects to it. But this was before a time when um, those computer people thought to protect those machines by locking the door <laughs> after hours. I mean, it was it was sort of like the BBC, or sort of like um, uh, like record labels in England in the '60s. All of the engineers wore white lab coats and and kept their ties knotted, but it was assumed you wouldn't go in and touch the knobs because people would harumph at you. So that was how. Uh cybersecurity worked in the early days. Yeah, you didn't want to get harumphed at. It was an honor system. It was basically. But some of the some of the early um or maybe I guess the the next gen uh like denizens of the Tech Model Railroad Club were naturally and in particular the people that were interested in switching and uh and systems that that you I mean a railroad a model railroad uses a form of circuit logic. Uh, when you were describing how, uh, you know, you, little modules would have things come in and out, I immediately thought of programming algorithms. Right. I mean, that's how a subroutine works. You, you, you'd split up the work by saying, hey, here's how your thing is going to work. And you, can, you, you build a thing that just takes certain things in and produces certain outputs. And if you put those, enough of those together in a right way, I mean, that's, you turn gates into integrated circuits and you turn little tiny routines into a computer algorithm uh, and little computer programs into an application. I mean, it's, it's not that different. It's, it's really not. And, and this was before, um, bef- it was before model railroading was an analogy for computer programming. It was, uh, model railroading was, um, I mean, predated computer programming. And people that, uh, that just uh, instinctively love to close loops that that loved the idea of of um, of circuit logic were you know like saw the potential of computers because they were already building this kind of system and you know another sort of system that was that was expanding at that same time was the telephone switching system hmm. which was a similar uh, and large scale uh, engineering and and mechanical switching. Uh, you know, like massive project growing in scale during this same period. And these people were used to doing it for fun. It, it was a hobby for them right. to build these designs and see what, what could happen, which I mean, that must have changed the, the aesthetic and the culture around what computers could do. Uh, it did. And, and, and w- within the group of people that were working on, um, on the Tech Model Railroad Club, or or uh, Tumerk, as they called it. Ooh, that's not good. No, Tumerk. Well, they have they they actually developed 
their own uh, a, a pretty extensive lexicon that we'll we'll talk a little bit about. Where does the ooh come from? It should be like Tumurk. Yeah, it is Tumurk. Oh. I, I I say Tumurk because I like to mispronounce everything. It's but not it's Tumurk. It's not a Tumurk. But this group, the group that you know, the group that liked to paint little trees and the group that liked to make old locomotives mm-hmm. were very different from the group that liked to build closed systems. And that group was called the Signals and Power Subcommittee, uh, which you know, <laughs> which gives you a sense of how many of them were Marxists. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the Signals and Power Subcommittee had this you know sort of small group of dudes. Uh, or not, not, not all dudes, or certainly later, not all dudes. And I don't mean to say not all men. Hashtag not all dudes. <laughs> but, uh, but this group of guys like, uh, and, and some of them went on to be, you know, quite famous computer programmers, Peter Sampson and Bob Saunders and Alan Kotok, um, who were pioneers of computers or com- pioneers of computer programming and, and went on to build, uh, complicated architectures later on, they were part of this uh, signals and power subcommittee. And they realized that there were, I mean, they were scrounging equipment to build their model railroad. And then that scrounging went kind of further out. They recognized that late at night when they were up there smoking cigarettes and drinking Coke and building their train set, that there was nobody guarding um, the other systems. And they were in this old rickety building that had no, because nobody cared about it. Nobody at MIT cared about the building. Nobody kept them from punching holes in the walls. Nobody kept them from uh, running wires, you know, uh, higgledy-piggledy. So there's something kind of clandestine about their model railroad culture. And, and they actually received a bunch of telephone switching equipment. Uh, surplus and and there were you know people kind of feeding them stuff and so they started to build this this mechanical switching system using telephone equipment and one of the big problems of uh, of creating a kind of circuit logic to a to a train set is train sets uh, the trains themselves run on power that is transmitted through the rails mm-hmm. so the 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 wheels of the train are metal, and they they make that connection, and it drives the little electric motor. But if you have an enormous train set, uh, first of all, you can't generate enough electricity to power trains all over this you know train set that has m- basically miles of little track. Is that and, even true today? The trains are not the individual trains are not battery powered, or no, no, they're not battery powered. Oh. The systems. The train tracks themselves are electrified, and it's you know sort of a third rail type of thing, but it's actually in the tracks themselves. Is it dangerous? Like, do no, is Neil Young gonna get electrocuted? It's low voltage, but oh, okay. but um, you know, most train car. Um, uh, if you look at a if you look at a model railroad, the little box cars and the hopper cars have plastic wheels. Uh, it's only the locomotives that have metal wheels because they have little electric motors in them. Right. But if you want a train set that's got multiple trains traveling at the same time that are going to do different things and um, some, you, you want to be able to stop one and not another, you can't do that with a dumb system that just has, uh, that just has electricity flowing through the whole system. No, that's real system. decision-making trees and stuff. It is. And so what the Model Railroading Club pioneered 
was uh, the idea of splitting the the um, splitting the system up into chunks or what were called blocks. Um, and what they did was any one of these particular blocks that were that were built by an individual member also had little gaps between the rails where where one section of track would lead on to another. And that enabled them to power those sections separately. Right. And, uh, you know, your train is moving fast, and when it crosses over... It's got enough inertia to get onto the new grid. And then the new grid, you're controlling it from a different system. Well, that's super fun, and, and it means that you can have different trains on the same track that are doing different things, but it is an extremely complex set of systems to control the whole board as a as a totality, right? You can't just you can't have a different person with a different knob sitting in front of each discrete section of track if you're going to have a a system, you know, that's cohesive. Yeah. And so all of this surplus telephone switching equipment and all of these um all of these different systems were being combined with this kind of global architecture. And it was also during a period when the first sort of students were getting into getting access to the the mainframes, the room-sized IBM computers like the 704 um, and the 709, right? And they are starting to have the, this access to it at night or the downtime when it's not being used to calculate big engineering problems. And some of the first computer programs that were sort of student designed mm-hmm. um, were very much like the ones that I tried to to program in basic in 1981. Um, one of the first ones just made the lights on the front of the computer flash uh, in order so that the lights went back and forth like a pong game. <laughs> and this was, you know, this was amazing to people at the time. And it really looked like the Whopper computer from from War Games. Well, I like the. Uh, it seems like they're um, they're really approaching it with the spirit of play. Yeah. Like it's not just like I need to accomplish this task. How much faster will the computer make it? Well, that's it's, what the nerds were doing. That's what the grinds were doing during the day. But these guys are the cool ones at night who are like, what has nobody thought of yet? Like, what would be fun if the computer could do? So there was quite a bit of of back and forth interplay between the between the young students who were working on this train set and the students that were starting to throw together these, um, these sort of initial programs that could, that could make the computer do other things. And because of the limited number of, because of the limited number of bits and bytes that these computers had, it was, um, it was then as now seen as a sign of your sort of elegance as a, as a writer and a thinker, if you could take a program and, and reduce its elements, reduce the number of commands to make it simpler and simpler so that your program had, uh, you know, used the least amount of, of, uh, command. And I'm thinking that wouldn't have, I mean, today that's kind of an, a matter of aesthetic pride for programmers that right. their, their work, their code is very clean. But back then it probably had a very practical value. If you're having to put everything on punch cards, it did like making a solution simpler and more streamlined, uh, 
It was it, faster to run. Sure. It had fewer potential bugs. Yeah. So back then, it was life and death to try to to try to make things simpler. Well, a group of students that were working at the uh, on their model trains, they had developed a kind of um, a kind of jargon that uh, that gave them a lot of pleasure because they were, let's be honest, nerds. Everybody likes to have their own little language. Yeah, they do, and um, and a lot of the a lot of the language at the Tech Model Railroad Club just involved. You know, rather than calling it the, um, you know, rather than calling it a can of Coke, they called it a can of kook or whatever. You know, they're just playful dorks. Uh-huh. Nothing that would make you, um, you know, that would make you really celebrate their uh, their lexicon. In jokes. But, Sh- shibboleths, as we like to say. Yeah, they had on, a lot uh, of shibboleths. And, you know, they called it, if somebody did something that uh, that screwed up a system, they would call it a gronk. And if something wasn't working, they called it mung. And we hear these things now. Mung was short for mash until no good. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I actually will use the word mung to describe something that's foobar. And foobar being another kind of World War II-ism that ma- ma- uh, migrated over into computers. Yeah, foo, I think, was a big MIT computer word. Which maybe came from FUBAR, I guess, but you still see it today. Well, Foo became a computer word. Foo actually has a um, a much earlier uh, origin story, huh. and that is absolutely – it's not only an omnibus that's teed up and ready to go, but the only reason we're not doing Foo today is that we're doing this show instead. But uh, And now I have to postpone doing Foo because I can't have another mid-20th century – um, like dork World War II uh, adjunct show for a while. I have to do some. I have to do some stuff about like drag queens in the two thousands. The great thing about that is the uh, Alexa will not turn on. Oh right. Well, who knows what she thinks when I say foo? <laughs> she might be like really writing everything down. One of the words in their lexicon was. If someone, as they were building a, a part of the track system or part of the switching system, came up with a, you know, an elegant solution or were thinking of it at a kind of higher level, they described it as a hack, hmm. um, as and and doing that work as hacking. So, and it was meant as a, although it sounds like it would have been uh, like a derogatory yeah, term. Hack means kind of an amateur, something that you know that you did poorly. In this sort of little room uh, of chain smoking undergraduates, it meant that you had, you'd figured out a workaround or had done something with a certain amount of elegance. It was a solution. So, so the, the term hack became somewhat synonymous with a solution. And because there was so much migration between these two rooms, the early computer programmers started, many of them, the same people started to, apply the word hack to any kind of computer solution where where a more complicated program had been sort of uh, chopped down, more elegantly designed. And it was a, you know, once the word gets into the room, right? It's like yeah. the word grok, which we use all the time to mean various versions of git or, um, or you know, fully understand, but of course has has you know, 
more specific origin. Hack seems like a case of latent demand, where the world actually needed now a word to mean a clever engineering solution, and we didn't have that word. Sometimes the words are just so good that it's induced demand, you know, like if it seems fun to say Hmong, then Hmong catches on. We, we, we took a lot of terms sort of generally from this incubator building, building 20. I mean, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the terms that they used, like for instance, black box. Um, the idea of a black box being a box that had that you're not sure what's going on inside. You don't you, know how it works. You, you just know what it does. You put input in, and and something else comes out. Um, That's a train word. Black box started because if people were uh, if if you know students had been working on the train set and had left without putting their tools away those tools would get put into a black box. <laughs> and in order to get the tools out, you had to, you know, pay some fine to the, to the club. So it was, um, you know, it became sort of synonymous with a box and you had no idea what was going on inside or what was in there. Uh, and it, and um, all you knew was that, that uh, tools went in and tools came out. The, uh, here's one that I actually used to use as a programmer. I guess Cruft was a, T-M-R-C, to murk word, uh-huh. which they just used to mean trash, you know, so, you know, extra crap on the floor or whatever. But it, 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 it this, this too generates like a, a metaphorical virtual version when it comes to computer programming. We still use cruft to refer to extra bad stuff that you don't want in your code or in your, in your uh, naming conventions or whatever, you know, just bad stuff that accumulated and now it's in there like garbage. Right. They even uh, they even used the word grunge, um, although I don't think that's where we got the name for the uh, the rock rock style. But grunge, you know, meant all the accumulated detritus that would show up in the corners. Uh, apparently, scrounge was all, also a word. It came. I think a lot of this stuff came out of World War II military. Jargon and scrounge, I think, has a because those, those guys are also problem solving on a budget with with duct tape and stuff. That yeah, and there was a lot of you know a lot of scrounging that went on yeah, during this period. But you know, Building Twenty was also um, also a place where a lot was going on at MIT throughout the sixties. Um, a lot of stuff that didn't have that that wasn't respectable and didn't have home in uh, the MIT buildings you know, proper, including this was where Noam Chomsky located his linguistics work at a time when it was, you know, kind of denigrated as a non-science. And, uh, that's, I always forget he was at MIT. Yeah. Chomsky, um, basically build, built his whole theory of linguistics there in building 20. It was the first place there was an, um, uh, uh, chamber, uh, which is a room that has where oh, right. all sound is removed. We, we talked about this in the John Cage yeah. uh, entry. Like he actually got to tour it and was fell in love with the silence. So that was that was pioneered at, at Building Twenty. Um, Amar Bose of the speaker company worked on his speaker design there. So it was a you know it was a very um, it, was a, it was the first makerspace. Yeah, it was. It was a very fruitful space. Well, so as the as the 60s went into the 70s, went into the 80s, the railroad club survived and 
although the membership in it sort of ebbed and flowed, it became kind of well-known as an incubator of this certain kind of mechanical engineering uh, oriented computer. It's funny that they kept the trains. They kept the trains and, you know, mechanical computing uh, persisted, uh, you know, well into the, well, let's see, when did, I mean, mechanical computing, uh, which is to say machines that actually were making these computations according to switches and tapes and, uh, and cards. Yeah. I mean, the integrated circuit, right. right, Yeah. Um, and in fact, I think AT&T, AT&T was still using mechanical switching in their, uh, in telephone uh, relays until the, until the mid nineties. We call that legacy solution, legacy equipment. Before, before electronic switching, I guess, became, um, became widely available. And, and so the, um, the MIT, uh, the I'm sorry the 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 Tech Model Railroad Club were, continued to be a place where people got to experiment with the with basic circuit logic m- mechanical circuit logic uh, until the present day uh, the the Tech Model Railroad Club still exists the Building Twenty did not survive to the modern era by uh, the late nineties. The fact that it was well, first of all, that all these nerds had drilled holes in the walls and and in the floors for decades. Uh, the fact that it was made out of plywood and I think it absorbed a lot of um, moisture from the Charles River, but also it was you know rife with asbestos. The building was falling down, and so in the late nineties, uh, they tore it down, kind of with with, with a lot of MIT style fanfare. Uh, a lot of there were a lot of sort of pranks at the end. A group of students built on the wreckage of the building once they tore it down. The, there appeared an elevator shaft that had never been there before, <laughs> and the elevator shaft had a bunch of uh, had a bunch of buttons referencing floors that were supposedly deep underground. So all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, this the the gag was, of course, there was a bunker. There was a building twenty underneath a building twenty. But they um, they were unable to save the the railroad when they tore the building down because, of course, it was oh was there was there a single layout that had kind of persisted and mutated over time? There over had, the decades? and it was oh, it's great. It was hard built and built with all this all this nineteen uh, fifties telephone switching technology, mm-hmm. and so they tore it down. And um, but they they built a new exciting building in its place and rebuilt the trains. Uh, the train set there, except now it uses a Linux base or Linux. How do you say it? We say Linux. How, and now it's, it uses a Linux-based uh, electronic switching system, which they're which they're calling the System Three. Um, I'm relieved to hear it. Yeah, and so it still is a place um, where where enthusiast students and and also there are a lot of legacy members of the club. So. It has become a place where old timers alumni hang out. Yeah, go and sit and talk about at wax nostalgic about their their uh, railroad layout. the The layout is set in the 1950s, uh, not just because that's when it started, but because that was a fascinating time in American railroading, where there were diesel locomotives, there were steam locomotives. You could 
you could build a... There were still steam locomotives. In That's the crazy. 50s, for sure. Yeah. Uh, you could build a very diverse train set that used a lot of different rolling stock, and it all sort of fit together in a 50s context. It sure seems like the, uh, you know, our modern perception of computers would be very different without kind of these guys approaching it with a spirit of like fun and camaraderie and, uh, you know, experimentation. Let's see what we can get it to do. Um, you know, the culture of open source software that came out of MIT as far as, um, you know, this is not something that corporations do. This is something we all do together as a fun little club. It seems like that's the extracurricular ethos of the, of the TMRC. It really was the, 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 the idea that information wants to be free um, in contrast to the idea that information, I mean, you know, I, I think the original quote, right? Uh, information wants to be free was um, Stuart Brand said, said that to, uh, to Steve Wozniak at one point at some conference in the eighties that information wants to be free. And, and the larger scope of his quote was that information should be expensive or wants to be there. There are always going to be forces that restrict your access to the computer uh, because information has value. And so information wants to be expensive, but at the same time, the expense of archiving information and making it available becomes cheaper and cheaper all the time. And we see it now, a, a complete proliferation of access to information. And so information also wants to be free and, and, um, and very crucially his, there's been a lot of talk about that, that statement and he doesn't say information should be free. He right. said it's, it's not a Marxist statement. No, he says it wants to be free. It's that a, it, it's the trend. The information itself almost has a will, and that was that was true of this initial group of people that really set the tone for what computer programming was going to be. They were basement scroungers and and soldering iron wielders who were who were doing it for the sport. And that concludes the Tech Model Railroad Club, entry 1282.1C1220, certificate number 33564, in the omnibus. Now, we now live in the world that has been wrought by the Tech Model Railroad Club in which uh, computers have entered every aspect of our lives and just start to play uh, uh, late-period Beatles singles, whether you want them to or not. Wait, I'm the Walrus is on the White Album, huh? It's not. It's not like a B side. Um, I'm the Walrus came out as a single. Oh, so it is a single. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember what it's backed with. Oh, it's on Magical Mystery. Oh, that's Tour. what it was. It was Magical Mystery. I always Tour. forget. Ma- when I was a kid, I had a I had a set of Beatles cassettes, and it did not have Magical Mystery Tour, but uh, it was the B side of Hello Goodbye. Yeah, uh, I had I first heard I am the Walrus on well, first heard it on the radio, but first owned it on the Blue album. Ah, yeah, my so, parents had red and blue on vinyl. Yeah, that was on vinyl. So we have, um, you know, John and I were active on all the social media networks of our era. I was at Ken Jennings, he was at John Roderick. Jointly, we were at Omnibus Project. If you still somehow have access to these uh, purveyors of uh, social deprivation 
depravity, I guess. Not depravity, right. It's, well, both things. We need more deprivation and less depravity. Uh, feel free to follow us, and uh, you can follow the Futurelings uh, on Facebook and a similarly named subreddit on Reddit. Uh, we receive digital email at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, so please send us your own uh, suggested MIT topics, because that's all we're going to do from now on is, you know, geek culture of um, guys in short sleeve white dress shirts. That's the new omnibus ethos. You can send us physical items through the mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I'm going to put in a plug one more time for my Jack Chick tracts. I want a good stack of those before we tackle it on plug the omnibus. Plug one. Plug one. I don't know what that's a reference to. Del Hustle. Oh, right, 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 right. And, uh, yeah, John just wants your great-grandpa's leather goods, probably, especially if it's, like, something weird and kinky. I wear your granddad's clothes. I look incredible. Is this Macklemore? Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's a, that's a reference that kids are going to love. <laughs> okay, boomer. The uh, You could make... Uh, in our era, we were John and I were deeply grateful for the dedication shown by our Patreon donors at patreon.com slash uh, Omnibus Project. You can make a financial pledge to the show, which keeps it uh, keeps it going. And I feel like there's I left out some the Reddit element. feed. Don't leave that out. No, I did Reddit. Oh, you did. Maybe that was everything. I, maybe I've maybe I've said all that I want to say. Everything is everything. Futuralings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Greek? I don't even know. <laughs> we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.